Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Hey, this week was sort of a hard week for my family. Um, you may not know this, but this week we sort of hit the culmination of a three-week stretch of battling the common cold. Apparently that thing's still out there and it's alive and kicking because it took us for a ride and three out of the four of my kids came down with ear infections this week. Yes. So by the time the week was done, it was like a firing squad of amoxicillin at, at, at dinner time. It was like, all right, here you go. Your turn and your turn and your turn. Everybody gets a little bit of that pink stuff. Um, so it was, it was definitely not the best week. But the tragedy of the week had nothing to do with colds and illness. It was that the power cable to our speaker that plays Christmas music broke. We had a week without Christmas music before Christmas. I mean, we could have played it like on your phone, but like music on your phone versus music from the speakers, that's a whole different game. And it seriously affected the mood of our house. So I don't know if you guys have done this before, but when something breaks, like an electronic or whatever, you kind of can go online and, and so, hey, I need a new charger, I need a new cable. And a while back, I did that for this speaker. I think somehow the first one got lost, the original one, and so I went online, and you know how it is. There's like the brand name, and then there's like the millions of other ones. And I don't know how it is, but like there's three for the price of one. I'm like, how is that not a good deal? So I got the cheap stuff. And of course, the cheap stuff, the non-original broke, frayed, <laughs> like just completely sort of came apart. And that's often the way it is. When you get the imitation part, the imitation cable, it just doesn't quite hold up over time. It's not the true, it's not the genuine, it's not the original. And that's the word that John uses here. The true light. The original light. The ultimate, the source light was coming into the world. But think about it. This, it's not as if like, if we were to make a parallel, it's not like I ordered the real cable and then it showed up on my doorstep in that like bubble wrap envelope, right? It's, it's as if I ordered the cable for the speaker and then instead of the cable coming to power the speaker, somehow miraculously at my door shows up Bing Crosby, Luther Vandross, and Mariah Carey all together, they're not even all living, for a Christmas concert in my living room. It's not like I had power for the imitation speaker speaker, but the real thing shows up. That's what John's getting at here. Not just the replication, but the real, the ultimate source of Christmas music has come. And Christmas brings a truer, more ultimate real thing than that, even that. The true light was coming into the world. Alethinos, aletheia, this word for truth, meaning the ultimate disclosure of God was here. So listen, we're going to continue word by word the study of John's introduction. 
Um, and if you think about it, this is sort of his poetic tribute to Christmas. This is his masterful, artistic expression of the incarnation and the glory that it is that the living God came and dwelt among us. That phrase in particular we're going to think about next Sunday, but that Jesus came is John's point. And the first phrase that we look at even now is the true light. But let's keep reading. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The true light, which gives light. Now, in the English, two words, gives light, is actually one word in the original language Greek. It is photizo, to give light. But here's an interesting phrase because it reads at first glance like this light is being given to everyone. So what does it mean? Does it mean that there is this illumination, this shining, this shedding light upon everyone inwardly? Of course it can mean that in certain scenarios, right? That there is an inward illumination that takes place. That everyone is illuminated inwardly by the light. Or that everyone maybe perhaps is illuminated without distinction. Or that everyone for whom there is reception of the light is illuminated. What, do you see the problem here? The light has been, which is, gives light to everyone was coming into the world. I think it's actually even though the English translation renders it gives light, means something more along the lines of sheds light upon. And here's why. Because it's not saying that the light that came is giving light as a possession to everyone. Of course, that couldn't be because of the rest of John's gospel. And even the next couple of verses, it says there's some who definitely didn't take the light. So he doesn't give the light to everyone as a possession, but it's almost as if light is shed as an invitation. Think about it this way. There are those who will, as we get down into verse 11, receive him and those who do not receive him. It's the property of light shining to create a division like this. All right, Corey, you ready? It's dark in the room right here, but Corey's going to do something. Flip. Light, when it shines always makes a kind of separation. Right now, the, the center aisle is completely illuminated. You go out to the edges of the room, there's much more darkness. When light shines, it creates a separation between light and darkness. And when, when, it sh when, when Jesus, the true light, came and gave light to everyone, there is a kind of shedding of light that illuminated the distinction. And that's what we're going to see in a second here. There are those who receive him and those who don't receive him. If you follow the theme through the rest of John's gospel, here's what you see come chapter 3. This is the verdict. The light has come into the world, but the people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly what they have done has been done in the sight of God. There are those who hate the light and those who love the light. There are those who come into the light and those who hide from the light. When light shines, rather than giving for possession, it creates an invitation to either stand or walk or sit in the light or the dark. 
Go ahead, Corey. You guys want lights on or off? Off. Alex says off. If you follow the theme, it continues all the way through the rest of the gospel, even up to the cross itself. But in chapter 8, here you have Jesus speaking again to the people, and he says that great phrase, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Do you see the distinction? Light has been shining, and it shed light upon the distinction those who walk according to the light and those who don't. This is an illumination that extends an invitation rather than a kind of illumination that's given for possession. We'll get to that later in a second. But we'll go on to our next word here. How does the world respond to this light? Okay, let's keep reading. We have here the true light, which gives light to everyone coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. There's a repetition. Coming into the world, the world made through him, the world not, not world is repeated because it's needing an emphasis. John is trying to make a point about to whom this light was coming. This word world is cosmos, from where we get cosmos, of course, could mean the universe, everything, the sum total of all created matter, but it also has this angle of the system or the order of things. And I think that's what John's getting at here. But before we go deeper into that, you've got to look at how he uses it. Because in the New Testament as a whole, this word world can mean a variety of different things. Sometimes it has a positive or even a neutral connotation. But markedly in John's gospel, it is negative. The world is something bad, negative. Watch this. Chapter 7. The world cannot hate you, Jesus says to the Pharisees. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So the works of the world are what? Evil. And then, verse four, and then chapter 14. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as... The world gives, do I give you? Okay, think about that. There is no peace in the world, and the world cannot give peace to the followers of Jesus. The, the world is not a place of peace, but it's a place of conflict, contention. And Jesus is saying, I have a completely different kind of peace than that. He goes on to say, take heart, I have overcome I have subdued, I have conquered, I have vanquished, I have triumphed over what? Over the world. And then, of course, that classic passage in not John's gospel, but the letter that he writes where he says, you want to know all that's in the world? All that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, coveting, pride of life, that stuff's not from the Father. That stuff is from the world. Listen to the way one commentator puts it. Cosmos is not the universe, but it's the created order, especially of human beings and human affairs, in rebellion against its maker. Therefore, when John tells us that God so loves the world that he sent his son, it is not in any way an endorsement of the world. It is a testimony of the character of God. 
And it's not even a testimony of God's love being admired because the world is so big. God's love is admired because the world is so bad. And yet he still loves it. Do you view the world this way? John's way. You think about the created order, the the setup and way that human beings and human affairs work in this light. One of the beauties of gospel community, a Christian community, we call ours that, gospel communities, is that you get the experience of seeing the way that different people approach the world. And even the way that different people experience the world in terms of John's connotation of it. I mean, think about it. Like, when you start to get into the lives of other people, you might see that someone experiences the world when they go to work. There's something about their workplace that is completely out of sync with God's ways and God's design. There's something about that job that is not reflective of the values of Christ. But others, perhaps, might experience the world in their own marriage, when the pull of the world begins to press upon one of the spouses, one of the partners, such that the experience of the dysfunction of the world is there to see. Perhaps it's in the whole game of dating, the world of dating, that someone experiences this connotation of the world. You can see the pain, you can see the dysfunction of humanity in rebellion against its maker in that sphere as well, challenging as it is. Listen, the world is something we all experience. And really recently, I just came to see that just as I went around my own gospel community, we're all experiencing the world in some way, very different from one another, but we're experiencing the same thing in a different form. And what we've been learning to do, I think, is to help one another see and understand our approach to living in the world. Now, you can approach living in the world in a number of different ways, right? There, of course, is the more irreligious approach to living in the world. It is to embrace the world. It is to full-on receive everything about it. With no filter, no pause, it is to take on in terms of inputs and information and media and customs everything that the world is doing. And so, therefore, mirror the world, because there's nothing wrong in the world. But then, of course, there is the more religious way of approaching the world, which is not so much a hug and open arms. It's a stiff arm. It says, hey, that's bad out there, and it's good in here with me. And so what I'm going to do then is I'm going to take the moral high ground while the world is low down there silently judging it, not saying it probably because I'm from Minnesota. And then I'm going to cherry pick the things that I like of the world to take with me. There's a religious approach to the world. But what I've been trying to do in our gospel community, and not just me, the beauty of communities that we need others to help us see the ways in which the gospel affects our everyday lives in the very situations that we've already talked about just the last few minutes. What I've begun to see is that the gospel approach to the world is very different. 
You see, Jesus, the true light, was coming into the world. And we then, as his followers, need to take upon his approach of the world. Where Jesus, clearly as he comes into the world, does not belong to it. But yet he still comes into it. There's a distinction. I'm here, but I don't quite belong. And yet Jesus then comes with a kind of love and generosity and a light that's shining into the world, even though he doesn't adopt all of its practices. He's been sent into the world, even though he doesn't belong to the world. And then, of course, that's the invitation he makes to his own followers. By the end of the gospel, he says to the 12, to his own disciples, hey, you don't belong here. You are not of the world. You belong to the Father, but yes, you're still in the world. And he prays that great prayer at the end of the gospel saying, hey, I'm not asking for the Father to take you out of the world, even though you don't belong to the world any longer, but you're gonna stay in the world as a light to testify to the truth. So there is in the gospel a new posture of relating to the world. One that says we don't quite belong, yet that we've been sent here with purpose to bear good news, to shine light, to stand for truth, to hold out that which is truly life to a world that has settled for something far less. The world did not know him. So what does someone who belongs not to the world look like? How do you come to the point where you don't belong to the world anymore? Well, let's keep reading. Here it is. The world did not know him. And then in verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. Stop there. It gets good, but we'll stop there. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The word here is lambano. It's this taking in, reception, taking along, this kind of close association, like you would say, hey, I'm, I'm welcoming this person in as a friend. It's not sort of to accept the reality that someone exists or to acknowledge some type of principle or truth. It's far more relational than that. But first, he came to his own. You can almost better translate that. He came to his home. He came to his own property. That's the language. And his own home, his own family, his own property did not receive him, but rejected him. And to make matters worse, if you go fine grain into the, to the Greek, you've got the tense of the subject, of the verb, which is in the aorist tense, which means very decisive. So he came in a decisive way, happened to his own, his home. And they rejected him. Decisive happened and did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, receiving him, of course, then is a synonym to believing in his name. Name, of course, is not just J-E-S-U-S, -S, Jesus, right? It is the sum total of his character, his person, who he is. In ancient cultures, the name was the mark and character of a person. 
to all who believed in the substance of who he is and received him as such, he gave the right to become children of God. Have you ever lived with someone else? Like maybe a friend or another family? I remember when I had just graduated college and had no money to my name because I'd spent it all on an engagement ring. True story. And uh, I, I, I moved to a new city and um, I, I began working for this church. And as I'm looking for housing in the area, I'm going, there's no way I can do this. And so they offered to set me up with a family to stay with. So I moved in with this family that was a part of the church and stayed with them for just about six months. And there's a big difference. Like if you go stay the night at someone's house as a guest and they're like, hey, welcome. They kind of roll out the carpet for you. You know, they're like, here's the towels. And, hey, and they say, well-meaning, hey, anything in the fridge, right? Help yourself to it. But you know, like you can't take everything in the fridge. It's not like you can, there's a limit. But when you go in to live with someone, like stay with them, weeks and weeks go by, all of a sudden their fridge becomes your fridge. And this family in particular, it was not like I was just sort of an appendage upon their lives. There was a full reception into their family, family dinners, family outings. I mean, bath time with the toddlers before bed. I learned how to take care of little kids like mowing the lawn. I mowed their lawn. Garage door opener on the little flip thing, you know, with the mirror in my car. Like I was part of the family received into their very way of life. This is what receiving him means. And not that we receive Jesus into our lives and he adopts to our customs, to our way of doing things. But we, when we receive him, the flip happens, are welcomed into his life, adopting his own customs, taking on all of his patterns and habits, with him having access to everything about us. Have you received him in that way? Does he have access to your fridge? Does he have access to all your relationships? to all your patterns and habits, such that your life has become a part of his life. The fact that you even have life rests upon his life. Those who receive him in this way, John says something astonishing. That Jesus gave, again decisive, aorist, gave the right status, standing, to become, so catch this here, there's a change that has to happen. You were not, but then you had to become by the giving of right and status because you receive and believe in the name a child of God. That's our last phrase for the day. Now, I know we sort of stumbled while we were reading over the not the will of man nor the flesh. There's a lot going on there. But if you shrink this down into the key pieces, here's what you read. He gave them the right to become, shrink, children of God, born of God. Children of God, born of God. This word is to bring forth life 
to give birth to. And the key point here in all of the not, nor, nor, is that nothing in all of human will, ingenuity, and achievement, not even our most refined cultures or accomplishments could do anything to birth this kind of life. Nothing of man could produce this. What John is saying is the right was given to become children of God, born of God. Full stop. Full stop is invited here in relying on your own merits, on your own efforts, your own strength, your own ability. There is none that will do to produce this kind of life. It's not blood, natural descent, probably meaning here, maybe even a nod to circumcision for the Jews in that day, not the will of the flesh, no kind of law keeping, no kind of moral strength or fortitude, not, nor the will of man. That probably leans more towards a kind of reproduction, will of man in childbearing is what he's getting at there. But full stop of human effort, full rest in God's great provision his gift, his initiating, providing, his saving. That is the only thing that produces life, spiritual life, eternal life within a person. What John is getting at here is that you may have a beating heart within you, but unless you come to see that life in the spiritual sense, and life in any sense for that matter, comes from God, you do not fully live. To be fully alive requires that you see that life with God and life spiritually and life eternally is nothing that you can do on your own, but is the entire gift and initiation of God himself. God has to come. We've seen in this introduction a couple key points, right? That new life and new, but that new creation, new incarnation, the incarnation brings new creation, right? This whole idea of creation in the first few verses. That the incarnation brings a kind of new revelation. There's John the Baptist, this prophet, and the revealing of new truth. And then here we have that the incarnation brings new life. The kind of life that you and I and that our world is desperate for. And John in particular loves this word. He loves it because he knows that Jesus, the true light, is the source of life, the origin of life, the only one who can provide life. And, and Jesus wants nothing for his followers but abundant life, life to the full. Now, that is not getting your wish list, but it's something truer. It's something better, something fuller, a kind of satisfying life and joy that only comes from the Lord when we receive that the light has come and there was nothing we could do to bring it. But all that we can do is receive it. And if we receive this light that has come, he will give us 
the greatest right and privilege to become part of the family of God itself. Distinct from the son, we will be children. He is also the son of God, but a different kind of son. We are sons and daughters, part of the family, but the one and only son coming into the world has given us that right if we receive him. Now here's the deal. I want more of this for our church. I don't know about you, but like reflecting in this season on this passage and then even over the past several years of our ministry, like I'm hungering for new life to come. That when we pray for joy, I'm praying for the kind of joy to to happen through our church, which produces new life in other people. I'm praying for the kind of receiving of Jesus that brings about new birth and new life in others. For stories of coworkers and family members and neighbors who've come to see that the light has come and have been changed by the good news of Jesus such that there is now life in their souls that wasn't there before. I want our story in the next year to be one filled with stories of that. That we would go, God, we can't do this. There's nothing of our own efforts, creativity, strategy, ingenuity that can produce this in others. But would you bring it? Such that this community might be a place where people come alive spiritually where they had a heart that's beating, but now they have a soul that's living because they've been welcomed into the new family of Jesus. I wonder how often we've prayed for that and what the Lord might do if we start praying more for it. If we say we can't do it, but you can do it. If we say we know it's not from us, but would you work through us? to bring new life into others. What might happen in 2022? I mean, what what could happen if for your friendships or your family, your workplace, if you just prayed once a week that God would awaken people to spiritual life? If regularly we got on our knees or we stood with arms open and we begged the Lord and said, bring life to those around us? Would he respond? Would he move? Would he come in such a new and a powerful way that people all of a sudden show up to gatherings on Sunday or to to, to gospel communities and living rooms saying, hey, I've come and I've found life in Jesus. That's what I want to see the Lord do through us in a new year. Because I believe the light has come. And as I think about my own story in my own life, and I remember the season where that happened for me, I I, I knew enough about Jesus, but I did not have life in Jesus. Perhaps there's some people in your life that's true for, or that they know the name of Jesus, but they don't know the name of Jesus. And so let's pray to that end. Would you do that, church, in a new year, begging God to move? to come in a powerful way and to work through us to bring life to others. I wanna pray for that now. And my only charge today is that you would pray for that in the coming weeks and months, that together we might celebrate in months to come 
the kind of spiritual renewal that happens as God brings people to new life. The incarnation brings new life. Let's pray. God, would you stir within our hearts, not a guilt, not a pressure, but a longing, an ache for people to know the life that is in Christ, for people to receive the one who is the light of the world, the one who is true light, the one who has life in himself, the only one who can bring about new birth, new life for others. God, we just, we humbly pray that you would use us to do it. You don't have to, but so often you choose to. Use us as the means of sharing the light that has come. Use us as the means of telling of the joy of the Savior. Use us as the means of letting others know that something has changed time and space and history that God himself came and took on flesh. And we've seen his glory. The only son of the Father. The only son of the Father who can give the right that we could become sons and daughters. And so use us, we pray. Stir us, Holy Spirit, to be a praying church, a longing church, a witnessing church, so that you might get great glory in us and through us. Amen.